As we look at Psalm 27 this morning, we see that this inscription here uh, is that it is a psalm of David. As we've noted before, uh, perhaps this is a psalm that David has written, or perhaps it's another one in his collection of psalms. Um, But we don't see a specific description of the circumstances of the writing of this psalm. And many different instances in David's life have been put forward as to the the circumstance that might have caused um, David or someone else to to pen this psalm. Um, But we can't define it down to, to one simple moment. But if we think back on David's life, we see many circumstances in his life when enemies surround him, when armies encamped against him. When he would draw on these figures to remind him and to instill in him confidence that the Lord is his light and his salvation. As we think of it, though, perhaps there's a, we could think of a more modern example of that. Um, I'm thinking of John Huss, more modern compared to to David, um, but John Huss lived in the 1400s. And he was, lived about 100 years before the, the Reformation began. Uh, His teachings and his life were an encouragement and inspiration for Martin Luther and other reformers um, that as he was a priest in uh, the Catholic Church and began to rediscover the truth of God's word and the scriptures. Um, Luther was impacted by his teaching a hundred years later, but he was also impacted by the example of his life as he saw in John Huss someone who was uh, remaining steadfastly committed to the truth of God's word even in the midst of a church that was seeking to oppress not just his teaching, but oppress the scriptures. As Huss realized and rediscovered the Bible, he looked back on what he had kind of come out of and called it a foolish sect, and noted that when turning to the Bible, the Lord gave me knowledge of the scriptures. I discharged that kind of stupidity from my foolish mind. This led him to an increasing trust in the scriptures and a desire to hold, believe, and assert whatever is contained in them as long as I have breath in me. Because of his challenges to the teachings of the Catholic Church and his desire to hold fast to the the word of God, he developed many enemies in the course of his life. Eventually, in November of 1414, he was urged to attend the Council of Constance by the Holy Roman Empire, um, but he was told that he would be given safe passage to the the council, and that he would have the opportunity to present his views to the church. Although he was reluctant to go, he did go, seeing it as an opportunity to be able to expound upon his views of the sufficiency of Scripture. Um, But upon his arrival, Huss was arrested. Uh, He was imprisoned and remained there for for several months. Um, But during that time, as he was continually hauled back and forth before the authorities, as he was continually called on to recant of his views, uh, he, he wrote several letters to his friends, and this is one of the things he wrote back home to his friends. He said, I send a rhyming answer plain to match your letters' cheerful strain. The whale did Jonah safe restore, no marks of lions Daniel bore. Three Hebrews were by fire unharmed, Susanna charges false disarmed. And why? Just, innocent, and pure, each kept in God a trust most sure. Their righteous Lord, who sets those free, who hope in him, eternally. The God of mercy preserve you and give you comfort in his grace and grant to you with myself constancy in constance. For if we shall be constant, we shall see the Lord coming to our aid. For the first time, I am now learning to understand the book of Psalms, to pray as I ought, to ponder over the insults of Christ. It was his hope as he was studying the Psalms, even in the midst of persecution, to delight in these truths and to gain a a deeper understanding of them. 
Perhaps Psalm 27 was one of those psalms that as he was facing those enemies, he was being reminded of these truths. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom should I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom should I dread? When evildoers came against me to devour my flesh, my foes and my enemies stumbled and fell. Though an army deploys against me, my heart will not be afraid. Though war breaks out against me, I will still be confident. Most of us don't have enemies the same way that David or John Huss did. Um, We don't literally, most of us, have people that are seeking to to take our lives or uh, armies that are encamped against us, although this is happening and it is a reality around the world for for some brothers and sisters in Christ. But I I want us to to keep in mind as we come to this psalm, if, if we limit this psalm to thinking that it's only speaking to our physical enemies and when an army is actually physically encamped against us, we might fall into one of two, two lines of thinking. First, we might then begin to find enemies behind everything. Maybe we'll then start to think of uh, the difficult boss that we have who wants us to cut corners at work uh, as an enemy. Or we'll think of the teacher at school who doesn't accept a, a homework assignment that mentions God as our enemy. Or we'll think of the neighbor who just makes things difficult for us and is difficult to love as our enemy. And I would just say those are not the enemies that the psalmist is talking about this morning. We can't turn every person that's not following Christ into our enemy. Our goal is to love them and to share the gospel with them. So we need to avoid thinking that. But secondly, if we, if we apply it only to enemies, we might be tempted to think that this psalm then doesn't apply to us. If we don't have people that are persecuting us and seeking to kill us or harm us, then this psalm doesn't, doesn't speak to us. But This psalm has a lot to say and is a great encouragement to us as we reflect on what the psalmist is going through in his circumstances and how that applies to us. So I'm not minimizing the physical enemies that he was facing, and I'm not looking to make enemies out of every situation in our life. But as we look at what the psalmist is facing, he's facing circumstances that are difficult trials, things that he is struggling to go through to see how is God working in the midst of this. It's bringing fear into his life as well, or or at least it's presenting him with the opportunity to say, I need not fear in the midst of this. He's recognizing that there's stuff going on that is turning his life upside down, that is having impact that is potentially could alter the course of his life. And so for some of us, we might be in situations that we can relate to that. Maybe for those of you that are young, as we think of beginning of September, it's the start of the school season. Maybe it's a new school, maybe it's a new grade, uh, whatever it might be, and we're just thinking things are just kind of getting turned upside down, there's all this new stuff that's going on, and we're just thinking the world's crashing in on us, there's all this stuff we have to do, how can I handle it, how can I get through? Maybe it's um, teenagers, those in high school or college that are just thinking through life decisions, all the things, the pressures of life, of having to make the right decisions about what college do you pursue, what, what career um, what person do you pursue to, to date and marry? And all of these things that just seem like life-altering decisions that you have to make right now. And how are you going to get through these? Maybe it's those that are, are newly married and struggling to conceive and have children. Seeing others around you that are having children. Maybe it's difficulties in marriage that just seemed like when you were dating and engaged, like everything was going to be great. And now you're wondering, is this really the person that God had for me? Maybe it's news that you've lost your job. Maybe it's the news that you're moving and need to start over somewhere else. Maybe it's the death of a loved one, and whether a miscarriage, the loss of a child, the loss of a spouse or a mother or father. These things that have ongoing 
implications and just change the course of our lives. Maybe it's a serious diagnosis from a doctor, something that we're just thinking, how do we get through this, this diagnosis? Can we even get through this diagnosis? There's many situations in our lives that are, are difficult, and I think that this Psalm 27 speaks to that and gives us hope in the midst of that. Because as the psalmist reflects in the midst of his circumstances, he realizes that whatever life brings, he can have confidence because the Lord is his light and his salvation. And that same reality is true for us as well. Whatever life brings, we can have confidence because God is our light and our salvation. As we look at the psalm this morning, it it divides into two parts. And in this first half, we see the psalmist reflect on these truths of who God is. In verse 1, we read, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom should I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom should I dread? This is where the psalmist starts. It's what he bases his hope on, that God is his light and his salvation. Interestingly, this is the first place in the Bible where God is described as light. But it's a a theme that will continue throughout Scripture. um, That Not just that God gives light, but that he is light. Um, and, And again, he the psalmist likens him to that these things are in God. He is my light. He is my salvation. He is my stronghold. God brings joy and guidance for us. He brings deliverance and protection. Uh, He brings safety and security. These are the things that the psalmist was turning to in the midst of difficult times, his recollection of all of these things that, that the Lord does for him. And his conclusion then is, whom should I fear? Whom should I dread? If God is doing all of these things for me, then why should I fear or be in dread of anyone? He reflects back in verses 2 and 3 to what God has already done to demonstrate his salvation for him. When evildoers came against me to devour my flesh, my foes and my enemies stumbled and fell. Though an army deploys against me, my heart will not be afraid. Though a war breaks out against me, I will still be confident. He looks back on this deliverance that God has already brought through all of these previous trials and all of these things that have have come before. And it's that reminder of God's steadfast faithfulness that gives him hope as he's looking into the future at these other trials that are coming upon him. He's being reminded whatever life brings, he can have confidence in the Lord because he is our light and our salvation. The psalmist then, though, turns to what does this confidence do? What does he seek? In verse 4, I have asked one thing from the Lord. It is what I desire, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in his temple. The psalmist expresses that this is his one desire. He He wants to dwell in the house of the Lord. He wants to gaze on his beauty and to seek him in his temple. These things all go together. These aren't three different things that he says are his one desire, but it's all contained in that one desire. To dwell with the Lord is to gaze on his beauty. To dwell with the Lord is to seek him in his temple. And it's worth pausing for just a moment to to reflect and consider for ourselves, is, is that our one desire? Could we say the same things about ourselves? That we have one desire, and that is to seek the Lord in his temple, to gaze on his beauty, and to, to dwell with him. As we saw last week in, in Psalm 26, and these three psalms, Psalm 26, 27, and 28, almost seem like they form a, a little unit here as um, they reflect on, uh, as, as the psalmist last week is saying, vindicate me, Lord, and deliver me from these, these, um, these 
enemies that are there. He's, he, again, continues this thought as he reflects on what God has done and prays for deliverance. And even in Psalm 28, he actually praises God for the deliverance that he's brought. But they all mention, too, the, the house of the Lord, the place where, where God dwells, the place where your glory resides. Almost like these, these three psalms are, are linked together, whether in, intentionally in the way they were written or at least in the way they were grouped together here. But as we were reminded last week that dwelling in the house of the Lord is also to dwell with the people of the Lord. It's to gather together and to fellowship with one another and to be encouraged by one another as we gather it's to, to come and, yes, worship the Lord, but it's to worship him with the saints. And so that's what we do as we, we gather together. We, we worship, we sing songs of praise, not just to God, but even to instruct and teach and encourage one another. All of this is part of, of dwelling in the house of the Lord. We do so that as we sing psalms of praise and we gaze on his beauty, as we reflect on who he is through singing songs, as we look into his word and look at who he is. But hopefully we're also coming to seek him and inquire of him in his temple. That it's not just gathering together for fellowship and good times and conversations with with people that we enjoy being around. But the psalmist is desiring not just to dwell in the house of the Lord, but to seek him in his temple. And so is is that what we're doing? Is that our desire, our heart's desire to gather with the saints of God, to worship him together, to encourage one another, to seek him together and to gaze on his beauty? We see that seeking God is not just filling our minds, though, with, with information. It's the desire to know him and to grow in that knowledge of him. As we're told in John seventeen three, that this is eternal life, that you know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's not just hearing information about him, but it's seeking him and knowing him. Now, I do want to just take a, a moment because we can, we can find it easy to gather together, and to dwell in the house of the Lord together, we can maybe find it easy to think, how do we grow in on our knowledge of, of him and, and seeking him through his word, through hearing his word preached uh, in our own quiet time? But I think sometimes gazing on the beauty of the Lord might be a, a harder concept for us to contemplate and meditate on and to just take a moment to think, what is gazing on the beauty of the Lord? Well, the idea of gazing carries with it this, this sense of just... Looking intently, um, steadily at something with admiration, just pausing to look at it, not just rushing past it, not just taking a passing glance, not looking at it at the corner of your eye, but to sit and to stare at it, to, to contemplate it, to reflect on it. Is that what we do when we think of the beauty of God? And what is the beauty of God? Sometimes we can think that we're looking at the beauty of God as we look at a beautiful sunset that he's created, as we look at the, the colors in the sky, the different hues of red and orange and, and blue and purple, and, and think that that is the beauty of God. Or we can think as we, we stand on the top of a mountain and look out at um, the lofty mountain peaks covered in snow, and as we stand above the, the trees and so, um, just gaze at the surrounding landscape and think this is the beauty of God. Maybe we can think as we're watching a waterfall just cascade over the edge as it flows down to the the river below, just foaming and misting and hearing its thunderous roar that this is the beauty of God. Or we gaze up at the night sky, looking at all the tiny dots of light that are up there, thinking that every one of these is its own solar system. And for every one that we see, there's thousands more that we can't see. I think this is the beauty of God. And all of these things are beautiful. And all of them point us to the beauty of their creator, and our creator. 
but they themselves are not the beauty of God. So what, what is it to think about the beauty of God? Where do we see it? We see his beauty in his son. We see his beauty in Jesus Christ, the man, Christ Jesus. So consider the beauty of his humility, that in the form of a helpless baby, he would lay in a manger completely dependent upon his mother's care. Perceive the beauty of of his devotion as he sits at the feet of the teachers in the temple, listening and asking questions about his heavenly father. See the beauty of his healing that he provides as the leper comes and, and requests to him that if you would, you could make me clean. And he responds, I will be clean. Behold the beauty of his powers, the winds rage and the waves surge. And with three words, peace, be still, the winds cease and the waves flatten. Look at the beauty of his service as the disciples argue about which is the greatest. And yet he stoops down and washes their dust-covered feet. Observe the beauty of his compassion as he weeps over a city that had just welcomed him in triumphantly and yet in a few days will cry out for him to be crucified. Stare at the beauty of his obedience as he labors in prayer and sweats drops of blood in the garden knowing what awaits him the next morning. Gaze at the beauty of his perfection as he is offered up as a spotless lamb for the sins of his people. Wonder at the beauty of his love as he allows himself to be nailed to a cross as a sacrifice for sins. Marvel at the beauty of his victory over sin and death as the women arrive at an empty tomb and envision the beauty of his kingship as he ascends into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the beauty of God that we see in Jesus Christ. As a modern songwriter has has written, See the king who made the sun. And the moon and shining stars let the soldiers hold and nail him down so that he could save them. See him there upon the cross, now no longer breathing. Dust that formed the watching crowds takes the blood of Jesus. Feel the earth is shaking now. See the veil is torn in two. And he stood before the wrath of God, shielding sinners with his blood. See the empty tomb today. Death could not contain him. Once the servant of the world, now in victory reigning. Lift your voices to the one who is seated on the throne. See him in the new Jerusalem. Praise the one who saved us. Gaze at the beauty of God and see it on full display in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is our light and our salvation. This is what the psalmist is reflecting on when he sees the joy that Christ brings to him. He wouldn't know him as Jesus Christ, but he knows that this salvation is coming through the one that has been promised to him. We see it in the person, Jesus Christ, the work that he has done on the cross for us, that it is finished, and that through faith in him, we are forgiven of our sins, and we have this salvation. He is our light and our salvation. And we know that in, even though we may not face the enemies that, uh, that, that David faced or John Huss faced, We know that our greatest enemy has been taken care of by Christ on the cross, the enemy of sin and death. That has been defeated. God is our light and our salvation. Whom shall we fear? The psalmist continues in in verses 5 and 6, For he will conceal me in his shelter. In the day of adversity, he will hide me under the cover of his tent. He will set me high on a rock. Then my head will be high above my enemies around me. 
I will offer sacrifices in his tents with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. As he considers what this dwelling with God is, what his one desire, he sees that it, it leads to God providing him with shelter. He'll cover him, and he'll lift his head and set him high above a ro- upon a rock. The Lord is the one that will exalt him and establish him. He'll make his, his footing secure and sure. And ultimately, it leads the psalmist to praising and reflecting on the, the joy that the Lord brings as he makes sacrifices in the tent of the Lord with shouts of joy and sings and makes music to the Lord. We see that this first half closes with this confidence that he has. He says, in all of these things, I will be confident. And we see as he seeks to dwell in the house of the Lord, it instills him with this confidence to, to find joy in the Lord and to sing praises to him. So as we go through the difficult situations in our life, this psalm provides an encouragement to us that whatever life brings, we can have confidence because we know that God is our light and our salvation. And what's interesting about this psalm is that if we stopped right here, this would be a really encouraging psalm. If we just closed it and that was it, we would be encouraged to go and face whatever the difficulties of life are and know that, that with, Christ, with God, we have nothing to fear, that he gives us confidence. But yet, the psalmist is only halfway through his song. And in this second half, he, he makes a turn. Um, in this first half, he's declaring all of these things that God has done. He's reflecting on what God has done and who he is and what his desire, what the psalmist's desire is, which is to seek him and dwell with him. But now in the second half, he turns and we see that this is petitions that the psalmist is, is directing towards God. The tone of the psalm changes. Everything up to this point has been past tense. He's been thinking back on what has God done to deliver him. But now in verse 7, he turns and addresses the Lord. Lord, hear my voice when I call. Be gracious to me and answer me. Now it becomes evident that all of this reflection that the psalmist is doing isn't just to, to praise and glorify God for past deliverance, but it's a reminder to him because he's going through something difficult at this moment. He's calling to the Lord to be gracious and to answer him. And he's reflecting back. He's doing this in the knowledge of what God has already done for him in the past. So for the psalmist, this isn't just a hypothetical scenario that one day maybe I'll face trials and difficulties and these truths will, will help me get through that. He's struggling. He's going through something and he's calling out to the Lord. In verse 8, my heart says this about you. Seek his face. Lord, I will seek your face. This phrase here, seek your face, is actually plural. It's addressed to more than one person. The psalmist isn't just saying that he's to seek his face, but the people are to seek his face. When we think about dwelling in the house of the Lord in community with one another, we see that this is something we're called to do together, that we're to dwell in the house of the Lord together, that we're to seek his face together and to pursue him. But the psalmist also says he will do this. He will personally do this. He's made that decision to seek the Lord. And to seek the face of the Lord, it it could also be translated presence. He's desiring, again, not just knowledge about God. He's desiring to be with God. He's desiring to be in his presence. His desire isn't just to gather in the temple, but it's to be in the presence of God. And again, what does that look like for us? So God isn't physically present the way that We might sit down face-to-face with a friend across the kitchen table or in the living room together. How do we seek and find God's presence? I think 
first of all, this, this presents to us one of those ways, which is to gather in his, his temple, to gather with one another and to, to worship him in song and praise, to hear from his word being preached, to fellowship with the saints. That's how we seek being in the presence of God. But secondly, and related to that, but we, we do it through his word and through prayer. We see who God is through his word. All of those things that we talked about, all those beauties of who Jesus Christ are, they're revealed to us in his word. This is how we seek his presence and how we come before him with praises, confessions, thanksgiving, and requests. We come to him in, in prayer and through his word. But an interesting experience is going on for the psalmist. While he knows he's called to seek the Lord and to seek his face, and while his response is, I will seek you, we see that he seems to uh, be having difficulty with this. That seems to be his, his thought at the moment. In verse 9, do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. It's a, a prayer of desperation that he knows this is what I'm supposed to be doing. This is what my heart desires. But yet, Lord, don't hide your face from me. Now, maybe it's a response because he just is finding it difficult to see God's face in the midst of this situation. Maybe it's just uh, that he's being proactive and knowing that, Lord, I, I don't want you to turn your face from me. But he's, he's pleading with God that he would have this desire of his heart, that as he seeks the Lord, that he would find him. And maybe that's sometimes how we can feel in the midst of, of our difficult circumstances and experiences and those difficulties of life. It can just seem like, Lord, I'm trying to seek you, but I can't find you. Where are you? And he's not gone. He is there. And this is the reminder that we have. The Lord is our light and our salvation. And we need to continue to persevere through the midst of those. He can be found. He desires to be found by those who seek him. And, and again, those situations might seem to overwhelm us and seem to, to overcloud God's presence, um, but he is there in the midst of those with us. And so whatever we're struggling with, the illness, the job loss, the death of a loved one, a broken relationship, uh, just considerations of, of what is God's will for my life, whatever these things are, our desire should be to seek the face of the Lord and to have this confidence to know that he will not turn his face from us. Because the psalmist quickly reminds himself of this in, verse, in the second half of verse 9 and then 10. You have been my helper. Do not leave me or abandon me, God of my salvation. Even if my father and mother abandon me, the Lord cares for me. Again, he, he dwells on what God has done. God has already been his helper. But yet he pleads, don't leave or abandon me. And he circles back to where he started, that God of my salvation, knowing that God is his light and his salvation in the midst of all of these things. And again, implied in that reflection as he looks back at what God has done for him in the past is that God will do this again for him in the future. And not that his parents in this case have, have literally abandoned him, but he's acknowledging this, this strong relationship that exists even in an earthly physical relationship. But to say that even if that physical relationship on earth breaks down, the Lord will not abandon me. The Lord's relationship to me is stronger than even the care that a mother or father would have for me. This is the one who is my helper, the one who is my light and my salvation. So whatever life brings, we can have confidence in the Lord because he is our light and our salvation. He continues his plea, though, in verses 11 to 12. Because of my adversaries, show me your way, Lord, and lead me on a level path. 
Do not give me over to the will of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, breathing violence. Because of the enemies around him, the psalmist is asking that he would show him his way. And again, this, this makes us think back to Psalm 26, where uh, he says, my foot stands on level ground. And we see this same call and plea for the Lord to set him on a level path, to set him somewhere where he's not going to slip and stumble. That even though the enemies are coming against him, he's asking for that sure footing to be able to continue to follow the Lord steadfastly and in righteousness. He's praying that he would not be given over to these foes, um, even those that are rising up with false witness and breathing out violence against him. He's asking that these, these accusations that are coming against him would not be, that they would not be given the opportunity to say that they are, are correct in their accusations, that the Lord would, would uphold him and keep him steady and, and righteous in the midst of that. This is his prayer and his dependence on the Lord. He recognizes he can't do this on his own. He needs the Lord to do this for him. He needs the Lord to be his salvation and his stronghold. And finally, in verses 13 and 14, he he circles back to this confidence that he has. I am certain that I will see the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart be courageous. Wait for the Lord. He has a confidence that he will see the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. The land of the living being that while he's still alive, these things will happen. He'll see the Lord restore him. He's not looking forward just to the fact that one day he'll be in God's presence, that sin and death will be removed in heaven. He's, he's looking at this and saying, the Lord is giving me confidence that I can, can persevere through this and that he will restore me here on earth while I'm still alive. Now, we don't know why the psalmist necessarily has this confidence to know that God will work all of these things out for him. Um, some think that this, again, was a, a psalm that was written by David earlier in his life. And maybe it's because of the promises that God had given to him that he was the, the one through whom the Messiah would come. And he has this, this confidence because he knows that that heir has not come yet and that he knows that God will produce his goodness through him in the land of the living. Whatever it is... He has this assurance, and yet we know, though, that that's not always how things work out. Um, And more on that in just a moment. But in the midst of this, even though his confidence is that that God will deliver him and that he will see the Lord's goodness, he knows that in the present moment, he still needs to wait. He's still going through the midst of this difficulty. As I said, if we stopped after verse 6, it seems like everything's fine. He's reflected on on who God is, what he's done, what his desire is. He's got this confidence. But then he turns to this plea and he ends still in the midst of whatever this difficult situation was. He hasn't been delivered from it. Yet his hope is still in the Lord. His confidence is that he will be delivered. But in the meantime, he's telling himself to wait for the Lord, to be strong and let your heart be courageous. He's still waiting to see this resolution. When I think of David's life, as I was reading through this psalm this week, I couldn't help but think of some of the, the similarities and the applications between this psalm and David as he fled from Absalom, as his son rebelled against him and, and sought to take the throne for himself and gathered a group of loyal followers to himself who would come and um, attempt to take the kingship from David. David leaves the stronghold of the city of Jerusalem. He leaves the place where the temple is, and he sneaks out in the middle of the night to flee from Absalom. Perhaps 
this was a psalm that was echoing through his minds as he's leaving. And some of that imagery that's there, as you think of, of him sneaking out in the middle of the night, leaving this stronghold of the city, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom should I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom should I dread? When evildoers came against me to devour my flesh, my foes and my enemies stumbled and fell. Though an army deploys against me, my heart will not be afraid. Though a war breaks out against me, I will still be confident. I have asked one thing from the Lord. It is what I desire, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in his temple. For he will conceal me in his shelter. In the day of adversity, he will hide me under the cover of his tent. He will set me high on a rock. Then my head will be high above my enemies around me. I will offer sacrifices in his tent with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Lord, hear my voice when I call. Be gracious to me and answer me. My heart says this about you. Seek his face. Lord, I will seek your face. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not leave me or abandon me, God of my salvation. Even if my father and mother abandon me, the Lord cares for me. Because of my adversaries, show me your way, Lord, and lead me on a level path. Do not give me over to the will of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, breathing violence. I am certain that I will see the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart be courageous. Wait for the Lord. We know that eventually for David that he is restored. He is brought back into the kingdom. He is brought back to the temple of God, to the stronghold of the city of David, and into the presence of the Lord in, in his temple. But that doesn't, isn't always the outcome of these situations. In the case of, of John Huss, while he might have reflected on Psalm 27 and been encouraged to have confidence because the Lord is his light and, and his salvation, he wasn't as certain of his outcome and that it would result in seeing God's goodness in the land of the living. During John Huss's eight-month imprisonment, this is one of his prayers. O most holy Christ, draw me, weak as I am, after thyself. For if thou dost not draw us, we cannot follow thee. Strengthen my spirit, that it may be willing. If the flesh is weak, let thy grace precede us. Come between us and follow, for without thee we cannot go, for thy sake, to cruel death. Give me a fearless heart, a right faith, a firm hope, a perfect love, that for thy sake I may lay down my life with patience and joy. Amen. Huss was able to face the circumstances of his life with confidence, not necessarily that things would work out here on earth, but because he knew that the Lord is his light and his salvation, and that there's nothing for him physically on earth to be afraid of. He had the hope of Romans eight thirty-five to 39. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. 
On July 6, 1415, Huss was taken to the cathedral at Constance, where he was dressed and then stripped of his priestly garments. His head was shaved, and a paper crown decorated with images of demons was placed upon it and put on his head. They led him through the churchyard, where copies of his books were being burned, and they tied him to a stake. He prayed aloud, Lord Jesus, it is for thee that I patiently endure this cruel death. I pray thee to have mercy on my enemies. When given one final opportunity to recant, he responded, God is my witness that the evidence against me is false. I have never thought nor preached except with the one intention of winning men, if possible, from their sins. In the truth of the gospel, I have written, taught, and preached. Today, I will gladly die. And he was heard quoting the Psalms as the flames were lit and rose around him and extinguished his earthly life. Maybe Psalm 27 was one of them. Maybe it was a different one, but he knew that the Lord is his light and his salvation, and he had nothing to fear. Whether our life turns out like David or like John Huss, we know that we can have this same confidence. The Lord is our light and our salvation. We don't know what the outcome of those difficult circumstances will be, but we know the one who is walking through them with us. We know that because he is our light and our salvation, because he is our stronghold, we do not need to fear. There is no one that we need to dread. Whatever life brings, we can have confidence because the Lord is our light and our salvation. Please pray with me as we thank God for this psalm and and that he gives us this confidence in him. Lord, we thank you for Psalm 27. and Lord, we thank you for the truth that this psalm gives to us in, in the reminder, Lord, that you are our light and our salvation. Lord, we thank you that regardless of the, the situations that we face in life, and Lord, we recognize we have many various challenges that we go through. Lord, that we know that you are with us in the midst of those as our light and our salvation and our stronghold. Lord, we thank you that we can put our confidence in you in the midst of those circumstances. Lord, I pray that you would help us to strengthen our hearts. Lord, that you would help us to wait on you. Lord, that regardless of the circumstances and the outcome of life, that we would continue to set our our joy and our hope on you. Lord, we pray that you would encourage our hearts and strengthen us, that that as we walk through these difficult challenges, um, Lord, that we would uh, not waver in our, our hope. Lord, we ask that you would help us to continue to seek you in your temple. Lord, that it would be our desire to gaze upon your beauty and to dwell with you. Lord, we ask that whether in, in this life, through the deliverance from these trials and situations, or whether in the one to come, Lord, that we would have this confidence and this hope in knowing that you are our light and our salvation. Lord, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.